God, our Father, Lord, hallowed be thy name. O Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we eagerly long for that day with great hope and anticipation of the glory of your appearing. Even our Lord Jesus Christ coming in flaming fire with all of his angels and arresting sin and wickedness and putting his enemies under his feet. Oh Lord, we look to that day. We wait for it eagerly. Oh Lord, we long to see evil overcome. And we long to see your righteousness come to live and reign on the earth. And so, Lord, we are greatly encouraged today as we consider these matters. And we ask that you would strengthen our faith and that you would encourage us with good hope that, Lord, even though the oft, the, the, the evil so oft seems so strong and so wrong, that, Lord, yet you are the ruler and this is your world. And that, God, it's all for your purpose and your plan. That ultimately you are bringing it to an expected end. One, Lord, which ends in no more death or dying or crying or pain. And so, Lord, we thank you for this encouragement. And I pray that we would all be encouraged as Christians to keep our eyes fixed on that day when your salvation shall be revealed to all the nations in plain sight. And Lord, our our great and blessed hope will be realized. We honor you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, Anna's going to pass your handouts down your table there. I wanted to uh, just recommend a couple of more resources to you. Here's one right here. It's called Charts on Bible Prophecy. If you've ever seen these before, this this is a guy by the name of Wayne House. And he has these these books that are basically um, charts that he puts together that that show all different kinds of uh, aspects of different doctrinal issues. So, for example, this one here is specifically about Bible prophecy, but there are others like this one here, Charts of Christian Theology and Doctrine. And so, specifically, both of these have a lot of information about different kinds of Bible prophecy and different positions and so on. There's a whole section in this one on eschatology, which kind of gives you a lot of overview kind of things. Then this one goes into a lot more detail about different specific aspects of eschatology. These are really, really helpful. Uh, Wayne House. H. Wayne House. Spelled just like it sounds. Okay, charts on Christian theology and doctrine, charts of Bible prophecy. Okay, these can really help you a lot, especially if you're really wanting to know and understand and kind of understand where different guys are coming from. If I have a few minutes at the end of today, I'm going to offer a question and answer, short one, brief one, and um, we'll see if that can actually happen. <laughs> but. Um, uh, that brings us to our study of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 1. We Last week we got through verse uh, 9. Actually, we ended talking about verse 9. And um, just to kind of give you the setting, you recall that Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians, is actually commending the Thessalonian church for their great faith. Specifically, the fact that they give proof or evidence that they've been chosen by God. They actually live like Christians. They don't just talk the talk, but they walk the talk. And so Paul is commending them for that. And he is writing, describing the, the, uh, the nature of their faith. And in so doing, he's trying to kind of spur them on to uh, steadfastness, to continue to uh, manifest the good work that God is doing in their hearts. And uh, in verses uh, 5 through 10, he really describes an amazing thing, and that is that this little young church 
have become so evangelical that they literally impacted their entire uh, region, the entire country of Macedonia and Achaia, which are two very large provinces in Greece, and, um, and that they literally had sounded forth the gospel, the Bible says, in, in every place. And, uh, of course, that's a little hyperbole, but the idea is they got saved and they wanted the world to know about it, and they went out and they told everybody about it. Not only that, but they did it in a manner that was very much like Jesus himself and the apostles. And so Paul says of them that they became imitators of them and also of the Lord. That is, that they went out just like Paul did and began to preach the gospel and make disciples. And uh, they did this literally everywhere. And you recall that Thessalonica was kind of right in the middle. It was kind of a hub city of uh, not only some major roadways, but also was a seaport harbor so that they had access really to a lot of different regions and things and places. And so they went out and they preached the gospel and they made disciples. They did exactly what they saw the apostles come through and do when their young church was born. And so Paul is commending them for that. Well, when he gets to verse 9, he, 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 he talks about the fact that uh, the beginning of verse 9, he says, For they themselves report about us, that is, all the other surrounding provinces, report about us what kind of reception we had with you. That is, that the Thessalonians heard the apostles' message and they responded. They let the word of God come in and they accepted it, as, it's, as it says in chapter 2, they accepted it as the word of God. They believed the apostles' testimony. And then furthermore, they had gone out and reported that to everybody around them. They went out and told the whole world they got saved and they told them what happened. Well, he kind of shifts from this commendation for them being really evangelical with their faith to describing what it is that happened to them. And he says in verse 9, how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And then in verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. And so he describes these Thessalonians as having turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. And so, if you will, he kind of describes the nature of their faith. Number one, that they had repented from their old idolatrous ways. That they had turned to God from idols. And here is kind of a comprehensive statement. They didn't just turn from their sins, but they turned to God from their sins. And they began to worship the living and the true God as opposed to their false and dead idols. And uh, there really is a lot in that, especially if you understand the nature of what this kind of idolatry was like. At some point, I'm going to try to describe that for you, but this really isn't the context, <laughs> except to understand what idolatry really is. I mean, if you think about it, right? <clears throat> I like the words of Isaiah where he says that, that, uh, that people who worship idols bow down to a block of wood. And the idea is that they are a dead, lifeless thing, and people make them into a god. And uh, if you will, <clears throat> anything that we allow to have preeminence in our life really becomes this kind of an idol for us. And it could actually be something as stupid as a block of wood, right? But it could be anything in our life. It could be a relationship, right? It could be another person. It could be ourselves, in fact, in most cases, it is ourselves. We're a God unto ourselves when we seek to do whatever it is that we want. And rather than bow the knee in obedience to the true and living God, we supplant him or we usurp his rightful place and replace it with anything less than him. Like he says in Romans 1, we worship and serve created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. And you see, that's the nature of idolatry. We supplant the worship of God, that is the ascribing of worth and value and position to God and who he is, and we replace it with something less than him. We replace it with a created thing, whether it be ourselves or someone else 
or some dead and lifeless thing like a block of wood. And that's what idolatry is. It's a supplanting of God's rightful place with something else. It's allowing something else to be preeminent in our life rather than him. And so in the gospel is announced the preeminence of Christ, who is God the Son. And in the gospel is announced the fact that he is Lord and men are to repent and surrender to him and obey him and serve him. That's what it means, that Jesus is Lord. Amen? And in so doing, that men can be saved from their sins and from the penalty of their sins, right? This is what the gospel announces, and this is what the Thessalonians believed. They believed that message of repentance and faith, right? And so they turned from their idolatrous worship of dead and lifeless things to God and began to worship and serve him. They believed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ so much that it says that they began to wait for him to come from heaven. That they were looking with eager anticipation of his coming kingdom. Amen? And so Paul there in these two verses is kind of describing the nature of their faith. They turned to God from idols to serve a living and a true God. And so I wanted to point out what this language really kind of speaks about. They had turned from their own idols that are not God, but rather false gods in contrast to the true God. And so if you will, there at the bottom of page 15, uh, a few verses of New Testament scripture that talk about this. Galatians 4.8 says, However, at that time when they did not know God, when you did not know God, he's talking to the Galatians here, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. And so here Paul is describing the idolatry of the Galatian churches, whereas they were very much like the Thessalonians, right? Uh, They were idol-worshiping Greeks who had believed the gospel and turned to Christ. Paul says that when they were in their idolatry, they were slaves to that which by nature are no gods. They were slaves to their idols, okay? And of course, Paul makes the point in Romans, right, that Whatever you give yourself to to serve, you are the servant or the slave of that thing, right? And so, if you will, they were slaves to those by which are no gods. And here's how he describes their idols. They're no gods at all. Imagine what a false enterprise this is, idolatry. So that when they go and they, let's say they're worshiping in a certain cult, let's say the cult of Artemis, and they are worshiping this idol, this image of this goddess. And, and in so doing, they have these practices and things that they perform as a service unto their God. And this makes up the rites and traditions of their cultic religion. Well, as they do those things, they're actually worshiping nothing but a statue. And that that statue in and of itself is no god. It's not even a god. It's a lie. They bow down to a lie. They give their whole life to serve and value lies. They're deceived. They don't even see the truth of what they're doing. But not only this, we come to find out that what's behind the worship of idolatrous, uh, of idols, is actually demons, which is what Paul describes in these other scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 12, 2, he calls them dumb idols first. He says, You know that when you were pagans, that is, when you weren't Christians, when you were walking in the way of of the flesh and following after your old sinful ways, he says, you were led astray to the dumb idols, however you were led. And, of course, you understand the word dumb in this context means they can't speak. Dumb typically in the Bible refers to the the inability to speak. Okay? So they're dumb idols. They don't even speak, (laughs) right? But in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 20 and following, he says this. He says, No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, now he's talking about Gentile sacrifices, okay? Because you understand that part of this idolatrous worship included the sacrificing of all their animals and all the meat that was sold in the markets and so on and so forth was sacrificed to their gods. And... um, And so he says that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. 
And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? And so Paul is pointing out that in their pagan idolatry, what they were actually doing was worshiping demons, that demons were behind the lies of the religious cults, of the idolatrous cults, and that all of these forms of worship were somehow secretly in the spiritual realm, right, actually influenced by demonic forces. And, of course, we know this to be true, that uh, uh, from, from uh, that section in Ephesians chapter 6, speaking about the armor of God, right, we know that our struggle is not against what? Flesh and blood, but it's against what? Principalities and powers and spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Amen? And so we know that there's a great angelic conflict taking place in the world. And that there is a, a war that's taking place, if you will, in the spiritual realm between God and his angels and Satan and his demons. Amen? Of which Jesus Christ has come and delivered the decisive blow, right? At the cross. And that he's announced his victory through that. And that even now, what's happening is the kingdoms of this world are falling. Right? So much so that it's going to culminate in the ultimate fall of all of the kingdoms of this world, both religious and economic, right, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what we see in the latter chapters of the book of Revelation. From chapters 13 through chapter 19 is a description of the fall of Babylon and the fall of all the false religious and economic systems of the world. And ultimately, that culminates in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of chapter 19. And, and, uh, and, and not only that, but the arrest of Satan himself, who is bound for a thousand years in the abyss while Christ rules and reigns upon the earth, first part of Revelation chapter 20. Well, <clears throat> these false religious systems that these uh, Corinthian Christians were giving themselves to and sacrificing to, Paul, uh, Paul says what was behind that were demons, and that demons are actually behind this idolatrous worship. And of course, we know this to be true. Anything that lies and deceives away from the knowledge of the truth is the work of the original liar. Amen? Amen. And so the nations of the world are blinded, right? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4 that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they cannot see the glory of the gospel of Christ. Amen? And, and so it is, if you will, that the God of this world, Satan and his demons, do this deceitful, blinding work. So much so that the nations of the world are led astray to worship dead and lifeless things like a block of wood or a piece of rock that somebody carves. And they make these things their gods. And then in worshiping these things, they sin against the holy God. And they do things which God has commanded them not to do. And they violate and they sin against God in their own religious, idolatrous worship. So then, understand that their false idols are also dead in contrast to the true God who is living. You see what he says here? He says how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And you see, that's really a mouthful. He's saying... You basically turn from what is dead and false to what is living and true. You see the contrast between worshiping idols and worshiping the true and living God? God is alive. Not only that, he's truly God. He's the true God. He's the one who has the rightful place as God. He's the one we ought to bow down and worship. He's the one we ought to give our life to in service to him. Amen? After all, didn't he give us life in the first place? Does he not give us our life breath that we can exist another day? Isn't he the one that when he blows the whistle, it's over? Has he not numbered the days of men? And yet we will disregard the Holy One? <clears throat> this idolatry is a belittling of God. And it's an abominable thing. Imagine the God who holds someone's life in their hands. They, they ignore him and instead bow down to a block of wood. How stupid is that? Are you with me? And I don't mean that in a mocking sense. I mean it truly. It's stupid. It's a stupid enterprise. 
It's an unbelievable thing that man has fallen into. Imagine the darkness of the hearts of men that they would do this thing against the eternal God. I think we look at it and we we see the nations going astray and we don't really realize what an offense it really is. It, It is an unbelievable thing. But the Bible describes what an idol actually is and what a worthless and futile enterprise it is to worship and value such a thing. Consider David's words, I believe it's David, the author of Psalm 135, where in verse 15 and following, it says this, The idols of the nations are but silver and gold, the work of man's hands. And they have mouths but do not speak, they have eyes but do not see, and they have ears and do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Consider what he's saying about these idols. He says, number one, they're dumb, they can't speak. Number two, they're blind, they can't see. Number three, they're deaf, they can't hear. And number four, there's no breath in their mouths. They're dead. The idols of the nations are stupid, lifeless things. They're not alive, they can't see, they can't breathe, they can't hear. They can't speak. Versus God, who has spoken. Amen? In fact, God spoke and created the world as opposed to an idol who cannot speak. It's just a created thing. He says in verse 18, those who make them will be like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. Now consider the end of idolatry. That those who make them shall be like them. In other words, If you worship a dead and lifeless thing, guess what your destiny is? To become a dead and lifeless thing. The Bible rings literally true here. Those who worship idols will die. They will perish. They will perish eternally. They have cut themselves off from the author and the prince of life. In the end, those who worship these dead things will become like them, dead things. The Bible portrays this idolatry as a stupid activity which brings no profit, but rather in the end they will be put to shame before the God whom they have denied and replaced with a dumb and lifeless block of wood which is no God at all. Consider Isaiah's words in chapter 44 verses 9 and following. He says, Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that they will be put to shame. Imagine the shame that must be involved if you've spent your life worshiping an idol and then the day of your death, you show up before the throne of the almighty and living God. And you realize that the prophet of your whole life has been this utter rebellion and rejection of who he is, utterly rejecting his authority as the God who created you and having to face him on that day of final judgment. That's where idolatry winds up. They're going to be put to shame. It's going to be a day of great shame for those who have worshipped idols who appear before the judgment of God. Behold, verse 11, all his companions will be put to shame for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves, let them stand up, let them tremble, and let them together be put to shame. This is Isaiah's testimony about those who fashion graven images and worship them. I'd like to talk a little bit more about this. If you get my Heaven's Light email, my last email I sent out was called The Folly of Idolatry. How many of you got that? I'm curious. Okay, a few. Um, In that, I, I, I am discussing how foolish it is to actually worship idols and to allow something in our life to supplant the glory of the immortal God. But in discussing this this passage in in Isaiah, I go on and I talk a little bit about it. I want to read this to you. Consider the absolute folly of such a thing as worshiping an idol. Man takes wood from the forest to cook his meals and warm himself. He then makes it into a creation with his own hands and then bows down to worship it, even placing his trust in the same. 
All the while God, who gives life and breath and everything else, looks on with great patience, overlooking this great blasphemy and granting them the good things of life. And I'll read here from Isaiah 44, verses 12 and following. Isaiah writes, The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat and he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for thou art my god. Now consider what a foolish enterprise that really is. With half of it, he makes a fire and cooks his food. With the other half, he forms it into an image and bows down to it and prays, Deliver me, you are my god. Now, if that's not utter foolishness, but consider how that's what we we give our life to, apart from surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. We give our lives to such foolish things that bring no profit and really in and of themselves are nothing but shame. Why would we allow things to rule over our lives other than the living God who is the true ruler? Why would we subject ourselves to such foolish things folly? Why would we worship and serve created things rather than the creator who is forever praised? Well, the reason why is because we're fallen into sin and darkness, and we don't even have enough sense, right, to realize what we're doing. What blindness has darkened man's eyes? What great lie has deluded his pitiful heart? Where is his understanding? Consider how many people today just move through life without even stopping to give thanks to God. How many curse and blaspheme his name, never stopping to consider his great command to repent. Think about the nations of mankind just going through life, just utterly ignoring God and just going their own way and never once stopping to thank or acknowledge God who, who, in whose hand holds their very life breath who gives them their food, who gives them their rain and their shine. Amazing. Indeed, mankind and his world are perishing, even wasting away, and all the while he thinks he will live forever or somehow save himself. Stricken with blindness, he gropes about in futility, refusing to simply bow his knee to the one who gives him breath. Oh, what pity. Here is described the natural state of man. Here his ignorance is made crystal clear. His utter inability to help himself is stated plainly. I read on in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 18 and following. He says, They do not know, nor do they understand. For he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. And no one recalls, nor is there any knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire and also have baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and I eat it, and then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. He cannot deliver himself nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Let us consider what it might be in our lives which may be taking first place? Is it God and his commandments? Or God forbid something else? Could we be guilty of such treason? What is it that we truly value? What do we worship or ascribe worth to? 
When we begin to value God above all other things in our lives, then we will begin to become like him. When we see the great value of life that God has given us, we will then begin to live with great purpose and meaning. When we put God in the first and rightful place, then we will begin to glorify him in proper measure. And maybe at some point we might stop to hear his great command when he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Amen? And so it's just a very interesting thing for me to consider the whole practice of idolatry. And to think that at the time that Paul was going through these uh, Gentile nations in the first century and preaching the gospel, that these nations were utterly given over to this practice of idolatry. They were bowing down before a block of wood. And they were worshiping these statues and these idols. And they were involving themselves in all kinds of hideous practices as, as a part of their rituals and traditions in worshiping these things. Who really, who behind the scenes, the influence was that of demons. Amen. And nevertheless, they worship these false gods. They worship and serve created things and never have enough knowledge to even realize that the whole thing is just a big lie. That's how, how much darkness has covered over the eyes of men. And family, it hasn't changed one iota. Are you with me? Man is still in his fallen state of darkness. He's still in a fallen state of sin and death. The whole world is in bondage to decay. Amen? And the only rescue is the gospel. The great glorious news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, but it's, it's this gospel in Jesus Christ that their minds have been blinded to, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4, right? The God of this age has done what? Blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And so this is why they need a preacher. Are you with me? This is why they need a zealous Thessalonian Christian to come walking into their town one day and turn their life upside down, telling them that he is Lord and that he is king and that he's commanded mankind to repent and he's offered a way that mankind can be forgiven of his sin. And in so doing, he'll call all the elect out of darkness and into the light. Right? But how will they hear unless someone tells them? Right? How will they have a preacher unless somebody is sent? Amen. Who will go? Who will go and tell them? Well, that was very evident in the Thessalonian church, right? There was a good portion of them that got up and did what God commanded them to do. And because of it, they were commended. They were calling these people out of this false, idolatrous worship of dead and lifeless things to serve a living and a true God. And this is what he says about them. The Thessalonians, they turned to God from this religion of futility and began to serve a living and true God. You understand? The nature of their faith was they turned from serving these idols. You you understand when you serve a demon, you know what he wants you to do, right? He wants you to sin. Why? Because when you sin, you're going to wind up in judgment. And he wants to drag you to hell with him. You understand? (laughs) So the worship of idols and the worship of false gods includes sin and abominations before God. Well, consider how when you turn from that, you turn to serve God. And instead now you give your life in service to him. And God forbid that that should be sin. Amen? What is it now? Now it's acts of righteousness and holiness and truth. Right? Now we put off sin. And we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we begin to walk in a manner worthy of the God to whom we now value and worship, right? And now we turn to God. We begin to worship Him. We begin to say, God, your love is amazing. Right? And, and now we begin to value love. And so what do we do? Well, we begin to love. We begin to become like the God we worship. Right? And we begin to value wisdom. Why? Because God is wise, right? 
And God is patient and he's kind and he's gentle. And, and God is filled with joy and peace. Amen? And so these are the things we begin to value. We begin to value the very nature of God. We begin to worship Him. We begin to look at Him and say, God, you're so glorious. You're so awesome. You're so wonderful. God, I love your peace. And what do we do? We become peacemakers. We don't want to fight anymore. We want to lay down the sword. You understand? And so what happens? We begin to worship God and what? We begin to become like Him. You become like that which you worship. You become like that which you esteem and value. That's how you know you truly value it. It's transforming you. What does the Bible say? Right? It says Romans 12 too, right? Do not be conformed to this world any longer, but be what? Transformed, transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? <laughs> then you will be able to discern what is God's good, pleasing, and acceptable will. Amen? As you begin to understand what's consistent with the nature of God, listen, it transforms us. It changes us. We become like Him. And so it is when we serve God. These Thessalonians not only turned their back on idolatry, but they began to serve God. Consider how they had published their new faith to all the surrounding provinces and what work must have been involved in such an enterprise. Think about this. This little church began to go out and preach the gospel to all of Macedonia and Achaia. Imagine what work was involved with making that happen. I mean, I don't know how many members were in the church, but let me tell you something. They were very active. Within just a few months, they had published the gospel all over the entire region. And I'm, I'm, I'm asking us to consider what work must have been involved with an enterprise like that. And so I say, this would have required a great sacrifice of time, money, and effort in order to accomplish. These people were given everything they had to the gospel. They were given every, I mean, imagine what, what this took. How many of them were actual missionaries, for one? And consider the great sacrifices that were involved with that, right? And then not only that, but the support that the church would give so that they could go out that they could travel, that they could have sustenance, that they could have what they need to go out and preach the gospel and literally sound forth the gospel in, in their whole region of the world in such a short time. An amazing thing. Family, listen, this is service to God. When it says that they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, let me tell you something. They put feet to their faith. Are you with me? It's an amazing thing to consider. And not only that, it's a convicting thing to consider. <laughs> I wonder how I give my life to serve God. And I look at this church that's a model church, a commended church, and, and these Christians, and I want to be like them. I want to be committed to God to that level or to that degree. It's something I want to aspire to because, you know what? They became an example to all the believers, Paul says. Right? God help us. I hope you're convicted by that. Therefore, uh, mark their service to God as an example for us to follow, of how a model church serves the living and true God. They had lost their lives for the sake of following Christ, and in so doing they had found eternal life. As Jesus' call in Matthew 16 was to them, then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Listen, for whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what will it be profited if he, a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will then recompense every man according to his deeds. And so consider how these Thessalonians had, had literally taken up their cross and denied themselves and followed Christ. They had lost their life for the sake of the gospel. They had made the sacrifice that it takes to go out and turn their world upside down with the gospel of Christ, which is exactly the imitation of the apostles who came in and preached the gospel to them. I mean, if you think about an example of someone who's lost their life, think about these apostles. You know, they literally have given up everything they have to go out and publish the gospel. So much so that they're found day by day walking the Roman roads from city to city. 
<clears throat> well, that brings us to verse 10. He says they had, had turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And listen here. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. And so here he says, to wait for his son from heaven. Notice that the Thessalonian conversion not only included a wholehearted repentance and a working faith, but also a sincere and genuine hope in the soon coming of Jesus, the Son of God. They began to wait for Jesus. <laughs> now, what was it that Paul told them that would cause them to wait for Jesus? What is this waiting business? Are you with me? And I wonder, could that be said about our faith? Are we waiting for Jesus? Is our hope uh, motivated by such an idea that we're actually considered those who are waiting for Jesus? What do we do? Well, what are you doing today? Well, hey, I'm waiting for Jesus. Are you with me? Does this characterize your life? Does it characterize your faith that you have such hope that you're waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ like these Thessalonians were? When somebody describes your Christian faith, is that what they say? He's waiting for Jesus. She's waiting for Jesus. Is there such hope and encouragement in your life? Are you longing for that day with such longing and such level or degree of longing that others around you know it? That they're aware of it? Are you with me? Is your hope truly fixed on Christ's return? Do you have such great hope in that age to come that you wait eagerly for it? Well, the Thessalonians did. They were, as Paul instructed them, to wait for his son from heaven. See, here it is Jesus who is coming, and it is Christians who are waiting. More than this, Jesus is coming from heaven. He is now ruling at the right hand of God in heaven with all power and authority, awaiting the time of God's perfect plan in history to come to fruition, and the majesty of his power to be displayed to all the nations of mankind. Consider how Ephesians 1 describes Christ's current rule from heaven. In verse 19 and following, Paul writes there, These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. Consider this. Do you view your world right now as Christ being the reigning king over the world? And that even though we look around in the world and we see the nations going astray and we see evil and wickedness at hand on every side, we realize that all of this is part of God's plan. That in fact Christ is, is awaiting a, a, a specific moment in time in history when he's going to come and he's going to intervene in all of these things that are happening in the world. And he's going to forcefully bring his kingdom to the earth. And he's going to arrest and destroy evil. Do you think about your world in those terms? Do you see Christ as ruling at the right hand of God? Do you realize that people around you are subject to the judgment of God for the way that they live their life day by day? Do you, do you have a holy fear and reverence for God? Do you realize that he who searches hearts and minds is now ruling from his throne in heaven? And, and whenever he's good and ready, he's going to come and he's going to bring the whole world in subjection before him. And that all of mankind is going to stand before him in judgment and be judged according to their deeds. Family, that's the truth about what's happening in the world today. You see, men are so men-centered that all they do is turn on the news and hear about what men are doing. And they don't have a clue what God is doing. Are you with me? Hopefully that can't be said about us. Hopefully we're children of the day, as Paul goes on to tell us in chapter 5. Right? So that the day of the Lord won't come on us like a thief. Right? That we understand and know exactly what's happening in the world. That we have a worldview that's consistent with the glory and the understanding of Christ's majesty as the ruling and reigning king. Let me tell you, he's on the throne right now. 
And he is ruling from God's right hand. That is his active place right now as ruling king. Okay? He's just waiting for the right moment in history when he's going to bring that throne down onto the earth and become the ruling physical king over the earth. Okay? That's the truth about what's happening. Are you with me? And so I wonder, are we like these Thessalonians? (laughs) Are we just waiting like they were for that kingdom to come? I hope so. It is no secret that Jesus will come again, both to deliver us from the wrath to come and also to establish his righteous kingdom upon the earth and bring judgment on the wicked and ungodly people of the earth who have rejected his mercy and provoked his wrath by troubling his people and by millennia of sins and rebellion against him. Consider what's going on in the world. You know, how much patience does God have? You know, I mean, it's just it's just unbelievable to me, the patience that God has, the things that go on in the world and that God allows that to go on any longer. It's a marvel to me. I understand he's got a plan and he's utterly just, but it just it's just shocking to me to see some of the things that go on in the world and that God hasn't toasted this place. Are you with me? Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. Let me tell you something. This is the Bible's emphatic statement. Okay? Jesus is coming, and every eye will see him, and all the nations of the earth will mourn when it happens. You understand? Like it says in Matthew 24, Right? It says the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and what? All the nations of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. Right? They're going to be mourning on that day. They're going to be hiding in the caves and in the rocks. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb and from Him who sits on the throne. You understand? It's going to be a bad day. It's going to be a bad day for the world of unbelieving people. You with me? But for us, family, it's the day of great hope. It's the day of our blessed hope, and we'll finally be delivered from this wicked, evil place. Are you with me? Not only that, delivered from our own wicked hearts. Because at that point, we're going to put on immortality. And we'll never again be subject to sin and death again, ever. You won't even have a sinful thought. I don't know about you, but I am longing for that. Good night. God, save me from myself. <coughs> Amen? Second Thessalonians 1, 6-10. through 10. This is very sobering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. Now there is a prophecy in Second Thessalonians of the second coming of Christ and the things that attend it. Are you with me? Matthew twenty-five thirty-one. Jesus himself says this, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Listen, Jesus is going to come, and he's going to sit on his throne, and it's going to be a day of judgment. It's going to be a day of setting things apart. For this day of rescue and mighty deliverance, we eagerly wait and long for, as this is the blessed hope of the church, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. On that day, we shall be transformed from mortal to immortal beings, never again being subject to the effects of sin and death. And so shall we live forever in the good presence of God. Paul writes in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 and following, and he says this, 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. So what is it that the grace of God has appeared and taught us? It's instructed us to what? To look for the blessed hope. And what is the blessed hope, family? It is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. To what day do we eagerly look? Why are these Thessalonian Christians waiting for his son from heaven? Are you with me? Their eyes are fixed on that day when the Lord is going to come and when evil is going to be done away and put away for good. I tell you, this is a day of great rejoicing, a day of great salvation for the believer, and for it we should be eagerly longing. But it will be a day of darkness and doom for those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. He writes, uh, he doesn't write, somebody writes in Hebrews 9.27 and following, Inasmuch as it is appointed for man to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Who is Christ coming for? Those who eagerly await him. And you understand when he comes this time, it won't be with reference to sin. You understand the first time he came and he gave his life as a sacrifice on the cross for the sins of mankind, right? The next time he comes, he's not coming to die for sin. He's coming to judge sin. He's coming to set himself up as ruler and king and to deliver his people from this present evil age. Are you with me? The next time he comes, he's coming as a conquering king not a suffering servant. He is coming a second time. And when he comes, let me tell you, we are going to be changed. This is what it says in Philippians 3.20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. You understand what the scripture says here? Listen, that he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. You know what that means? (laughs) That means you're going to get a new body, a glorified body, a body like Jesus has. You understand? Into conformity with the body of his glory. You understand? Can't ever die. It's immortal. Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and following, that that body is immortal which means it shall never die, and it is imperishable, which means it shall never die. You understand? That's what Jesus is going to do to the righteous when he comes. He's going to transform our body to be like his body. We're going to be made to be immortal. That means we can't ever sin, right? Behold, the day is coming, says the Lord, right? There will be no more mourning or dying or crying or pain, for the old order of things is going to pass away. Amen? So you understand why we eagerly wait for a Savior, verse 20, right? We're eagerly waiting for that day, amen? That is, if you love his appearing. For some people, that's dreaded terror. As a matter of fact, they don't want to talk about it. You bring it up and they're looking for a cave to hide in. Amen? Some people love his appearing, and that's all they want to talk about. Praise God. Some things are worthy of conversation. Amen? (laughs) Here Paul says, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus. Paul is ever mindful to remind us of the great victory over death that our Lord did achieve, which was proved positive by his resurrection from the dead. You understand what the resurrection means? It means that when Jesus promises us eternal life, he can in fact deliver. You understand? 
Buddha's bones are still in the grave. And so are Muhammad's. Okay? But Jesus is in heaven because he has risen from the dead and ascended into heaven to God's right hand. You understand? His bones aren't in the grave. And so when Jesus says, he who believes in me has life, has passed from death unto life and will not come into judgment, guess what? He can make good on it. There is proof positive in the fact that he was raised from the dead. This central tenet of the Christian faith is the very ground of our hope that Jesus Christ has in fact conquered sin and death and can in fact give us immortality and eternal life. Of the facts of this resurrection, Paul testifies, and Peter reminds us that because of it, our faith and hope are in God, who has caused us to be born again into a living hope. For example, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, when he writes of the resurrection, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, that is, died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. You understand here? Paul says that there are more than 513 eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ. I wonder if that could be admitted into a court of law as sufficient testimony. Oh, I think so. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Peter tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You understand that what Christians have is a living hope? It's a hope that's alive. This is why we eagerly wait for this day, family. I mean, if, if all we ever were going to have in eternity was what we have here and now, man, we would be pitiful. Amen? But we're looking for the day of glory. Are you with me? We're looking for a world whose build and maker is God. Are you with me? Who in that place, there's no more dying or crying or mourning or pain. The things that cause us sorrow and hurt and distress are going to pass away. And they're never again going to exist in, in, in God's glorious new heavens and earth. Are you with me? I don't know about you, but I can't wait. I can't wait so much, I tell people about it all the time. Are you with me? I'm eagerly waiting for his son from heaven. Are you? He tells us again, 1 Peter 1, 20 and following, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. You understand that Jesus being raised from the dead is proof positive that he has power to give eternal life? And that our hope is not an empty hope. Our faith in Christ is not an empty faith. It's faith in a powerful Christ who has conquered sin and death. Amen? Let me tell you, he's coming soon. And when he comes, family, we are going to be the recipients of that glorious day. I don't know about you, but that's got me eagerly waiting on the edge of my seat. Amen? Are you with me? I hope that's what characterizes our faith. Well, I was hoping to get through to the end of chapter, page 18. And I was sure that was going to provoke some questions. <laughs> uh, but I, I suppose we'll wait for next week. So uh, with that, let's pray. Our God and Father, Lord, we are grateful for such hope. God, if all we could experience was what we have in this life, God, the pain is so great at times. 
the sorrow of this life. Lord, the stress, the concern. Lord, we eagerly look for that day when you will come and take away evil forever. We look for that day, Lord, when there will be nothing but hope and love and joy and peace and kindness and gentleness. We look for that day, Lord, when we will all lie down together, rest, and worship you in the beauty of holiness, God, that we might even see you. Lord, I pray that whatever we might be facing today or this week or this month or this year, that we would be encouraged to wait for you. Oh, Lord, that we might even pray for that day to hasten. Oh, Lord, to it we eagerly look, longing to be delivered, longing, Lord, to be made immortal and no longer subject to sin and death. Father, give us this hope. Oh, Lord, may it even cause us to publish our faith. May it cause us to tell others of the glory of your soon coming kingdom. We honor you and we praise you for such wonderful promises. I pray that they live in our hearts each and every day. We give you glory and honor because of Jesus' holy cross. Amen.